So Jesus, help us learn from those words in your Bible and help us to grow from them. Pray this in your name, Jesus. Amen. Good to see all of you. One of the things I've been pondering for the last, uh, ever since last night is how can the outcome of a game, which really doesn't change my life in any real way, how can it make me so very, very happy? <laughs> like, I am just so happy today because, I mean, like, I mean, come on. I mean, that pick six by Cam Chancellor and jumping over, I mean, that was like, wow. I mean, I was, I was pounding on my son. I was so excited. And my daughter said, oh, poor daddy needs a man friend in the family. So, <laughs> so if you think that makes you happy, I have some predictions for 2015. The Seahawks will win the Super Bowl, yes. Mariners are going to go to the World Series. I'd say win it, but I don't want to be overly optimistic. NBA basketball is going to return to Seattle. And the Sounders are going to do whatever Sounders do. I, I grew up in a town where soccer was considered communist, so I never got to learn it. Okay, how many of you think all of that is going to happen this year? Uh, wow, not, wow. Like this section didn't rate, you're good. What a bunch of Debbie Downers over here, man. No faith, man. Well, if you have doubts about all that happening, I have something that I know can for sure happen this year for you because Jesus can make it so. And that is that you can grow to become the kind of person that, that you want to be, the man, the woman that you want to be, that you were designed to be by God. You can grow to be that man, to be that woman. So for the next couple of weeks, what we're going to talk about is some habits, actually sort of more of attitudes toward life. That, that help people grow spiritually as well as relationally and in community. How do you grow? And the first habit or attitude is really the basis of all the others, and that is we got to delete delusions. That is self-deceptions. One of the things my predecessor here, Dick Leon, used to say to me was, remember, Scott, the powers of self-delusion are almost infinite. He said that to me a lot, actually. I, I'm not sure what he's getting at. But it is absolutely true that we can be blind to so many things in our lives, right? Two weeks ago, the parking and brake lights on my car got stuck on, even when the car was off. And my wife said, you know, it's probably a button somewhere, but I looked everywhere, couldn't find it. And then I thought, well, maybe it might be a fuse, pulled out the fuse box. Now it wasn't that. So finally I figured, you know, it's 15 years old, it's just, it's just busted. Next morning, the battery's dead, so we jumped in and drove it to the mechanic. And as I, I was describing the problem to him, but he didn't write anything down. Instead, he just got up, went out to my car, flicked a button on the steering column, lights went out. Apparently, it's a feature of some kind. Okay, the worst part was my wife was there. Now, but she didn't, she, didn't, she didn't even have to say, I told you so. I mean, I knew. She didn't even have to say it. But she did. Okay, we've had that car for 15 years. You'd think I would have noticed that button by now. We can be so blind to so many things, especially when it comes to ourselves, right? For example, 94% of college professors think that they are in the top 10% of their profession. <laughs> All English professors, because they can't do math, right? 95% of people say they always obey the golden rule. Really? You'd think the world would be a little bit better place, wouldn't you? A friend of mine has a stepmother, very mean person, and and always says, I don't need some God somewhere to forgive me because I'm a good person. 
I'm a very good person. And, and every night I just cleanse myself of anything that I might have done wrong. I just love that, might have done wrong. Okay, here's the thing. She has burned through a bunch of marriages because she's so toxic. Her own kids will not speak to her because she's hurt them so badly. Blind, absolutely blind, deceiving herself about what's really going on with her. I see this in the people I counsel all the time, and I see it in myself. A lot of self-deception. Apostle John puts it this way. If we claim to be without sin, we're liars. We deceive ourselves. That is self-deception. And deleting those deceptions is the absolute first step toward any kind of growth. Because if we don't do it, if we don't get rid of our illusions about ourselves, we don't grow because we don't think we need to. Because I don't have a problem. But, and this is important to also remember, we're not just blind to our flaws, are we? We're also, some of us, blind to some of the strengths that we have, some of our good sides. And that also prevents growth because then we don't have the confidence we need to act boldly. And here's one of the things, sort of the tragic ironies in life. Ever noticed how people who are their own worst critics think that they're just not hard enough on themselves? Meanwhile, other folks, whenever they're asked in a job interview, what's your greatest weakness, always say, well, I am just too hard on myself. Oh, far out. Right? Meanwhile, everyone in their life is going, no, 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 not quite hard enough. You've got a ways to go. We have delusions of grandeur, we have delusions of adequacy, we have delusions of inadequacy and failure, and truth be told, most of us toggle back and forth between all of them. So how do we delete those self-deceptions? Well, because this is so important, uh, I'm going to actually do this in two different sermons. So because this is the first step toward all growth, I'm going to divide it into two sermons. I'll give two suggestions today, and then I'll give some more next week in part two of this sermon. And I am trusting that here at the 945 service, there'll still be some of you here because kickoff is at 12.05. And don't worry, I will be highly motivated to land this plane on time (laughs) because I'm going home and watching the game. So I love you all, but I'm going home and watching the game. Okay, first step to delete, del- I probably shouldn't have said that as a pastor, should I have? Well, anyway, I, but I, there it is, it's there. So, okay, first step toward getting rid of those self-deceptions, and I'm going to spend the most time here, and some of this will be a little teachier than I normally am, but some of you like teachy, so here you go. You got to let the Bible read you. You know, preachers always say read the Bible. Oh, a little more important, actually, to let the Bible read you. That is, let it critique you. Let it be a mirror that reflects back to you who you really are, good sides and bad sides. The passage we read today says, if we say we don't sin, we make God out to be a liar and his word is not in us. Word there certainly means scripture, but it also means Jesus, who is God's word made flesh. And notice the preposition, in. Scripture is God's word to us, but it needs to be in us. We need to let it sink in and shape us. When we read the Bible sometimes, or you know, a lot of times when we hear a sermon, you know, often we'll think, boy, this person next to me really needs to hear this. It's called the ministry of the elbow. Are you getting it? Are you listening? Right? I, see, I see it. I see it happening out there. Right? Or we'll think, oh man, I wish so-and-so was here to hear this sermon. Well, okay, here's the thing. So-and-so's not here, but you are. What's God saying to you? And the theological word for this, I told you it was going to be a little headier than normal, so here's some theology. The- theological word for this is called Revelation. That is, God reveals himself to us. We don't figure it out. We can't figure him out. There's a higher source of knowledge than ourselves, and it's God, and it's got to be revealed. But the problem with the way that we tend to read the Bible is that we discount the parts we don't like, right? Or we we really discount the parts that don't fit with our culture. 
But that is precisely the Bible's strength. It does not fit our culture. It is counter to our culture, which is why it can critique our culture better than anything else can. Right? And, and, and when we say things like, well, you know, I know that's in the Bible, but I like, I like to think of God like this rather than like this. That'd be like you saying to me, you know, Scott, I know you say you were born in Richland, Washington, but I like to think of you as having been born in Tukwila. You know, you're just a sort of Tukwila kind of guy. Well, okay, I mean, that's fine, but you don't know me because there's nothing Tukwila about me, all right? I am, I am void of Tukwila-ness. Nothing wrong with Tukwila. I just don't have any of it in me. The book of Hebrews says this, the word of God is alive and active. That is not a dead letter from the past. It lives now, and it can change us now, sharper than any double-edged sword. It penetrates even to dividing soul and spirit, joints and marrow. That is, it can break past a surface religion and get inside to an inner spiritual reality. And when it does that, it starts to unmask our self-deceptions. And I'll give you an example in a minute. The other thing it does is it reveals primarily how much God loves us. And a simple way to read any passage of the Bible and get something out of it is to simply ask two questions. First, what does this passage tell me about God? And then what does this passage tell me about me? Ask those two questions of almost any passage and you can get something out of it. It can start to unmask some of your self-deceptions. And let me just give a few pointers for how you read this. You know, start with the highlights, right? You know, the Gospels, I, I recommend Luke, Genesis, first part of Exodus. Skip the begats, you know, that's graduate level. Don't worry about it for right now. Read just a little bit at a time and ask those two questions. Always read any passage in light of the whole of Scripture. It takes the entire Bible to reveal the character of God. Don't fix it in any one verse. Remember that God is love, always, always. Now, because God is love, he's also a warrior, out to destroy the damage that the devil and sin does. So you see a warrior God, but it's motivated out of his love. The Bible contains different genres, history, poetry, illustrative stories. Read each according to its genre. Seek help when you don't understand. You know, you get stuck, ask a pastor. Our library has tons of resources. Email one of our library volunteers. Be happy to help you. And in all of this, let the Bible read you and your culture. Because it doesn't sync with our culture, that's its power. It can critique not just ours, but all cultures. Let me give you some for instances. In Exodus, God liberates the Jews from slavery in Egypt, showing that he is a God who sides with the poor and the oppressed, and he calls all cultures to do the same. Or take the issue of conquest and violence. Yes, there are some passages in the Bible where the conquest happens, right? but they are provisional to establish the nation of Israel. And because the Canaanite, the Canaanite regimes that they conquered were maximum evil, burning kids alive as part of pagan rituals, sexual slavery, all kinds of stuff. And even there, Canaanites, like Rahab, who was a prostitute, were welcome to join the Israelite community. Conquest is not the norm in Scripture, and it is certainly not the way of Jesus, which is why Christianity spread not just once, but twice throughout all of Europe without the use of the sword. First in the Roman Empire, by Christians living a radically different way that was attractive, and then after the fall of Rome, Europe was re-Christianized, by, 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 not by conquest, but by Christians going to various Germanic tribes and just living a countercultural life that re was repellent to those Germanic tribes because they were all about war, and all of those tribes would say in Europe would say, well, we don't want to worship your God. He got defeated on a cross. We want a God who will help us conquer the world. 
But the counterculture lives that Christians were living was so compelling, yet again, for a second time, Europe was re-Christianized without conquest, without violence, without the use of the sword. You have to go forward almost a thousand years before you get any conquest happening in the name of Christianity. And even then, Christians at the time were protesting it, and it was short-lived, relatively speaking. Let me give you one last example of how Bible can critique us and our culture and unmask self-deceptions. Sex, which is where our culture thinks that, man, I mean, just, you know, hopelessly, Bible's hopelessly out of touch with, you know, on sexual issues. But one of the reasons Roman women flocked to Christianity was because of its sexual morals. Because see, back then, back in Roman culture, they were considered just sexual objects valued only for the way that they looked. So, man, aren't you glad you don't live in such a primitive culture as that? So the idea that women were endowed with all the dignity and rights of any man came out of the Bible. And that a man can't just discard his wife and family when he wants to, leaving them in poverty. All of that was liberating to women. You know who else liked it? Roman men. Because now men weren't judged by how many mistresses they could acquire, which, you know, if you think about it, that's a lot of pressure and can be kind of exhausting. And this Christian ethic meant they were closer to their families, which they found gave them more joy. Let me ask this question. Has the sexual revolution in our culture really been all that awesome? Like, are women, for instance, now viewed less as sexual objects than they used to be? Miley Cyrus, Britney Spears, right? I think it makes the point. A while back, I was talking with a guy. He would not call himself a Christian, but he likes the idea, the biblical idea of saving sex for marriage. 25-year-old, good-looking guy, not a Christian, says, I like what the Bible says about sex. I was like, I was stunned. So I said, well, tell me about that. And he said, well, it seems to me that you can't be that intimate and not be, you know, bonded to someone. But if that person hasn't promised never to leave you, then one of two things is going to happen. Either they leave you and you get hurt and accumulate baggage, and every time you sleep with someone else, you accumulate more until you take all of that into marriage, and now you're doing a bunch of comparisons in your head and sex is diminished. Or you know all that can happen, so you guard your heart and sex becomes more casual and just more physical and you leave out some of your soul and you don't join your lives together and yet again, sex is not as cool as it could have been. Okay, he's an, he's an agnostic. I'm like, even though you're agnostic, could you come and preach at my church? Because that was good, right? You said that better than I could say that. Not even a Christian allowing the Bible to critique him and our culture. There may be more wisdom in the old book than we give it credit for. Now, don't hear what I'm not saying. We all of us mess up. All of us mess up in lots of ways, including sexually, which is where today's verse is so important. If we confess our sins, that is, delete our self-deceptions, God is faithful and just and will cleanse us from all unrighteousness. See, here's what the Bible does. It can confront us, convict us, does not make us feel guilty. Guilt is of the devil. If you're feeling guilty, that comes from the devil. Guilt says, I am bad. Bible just says... Here's the better way to live. Scripture unmasks our self-deceptions, but it also leads us to the grace of God. It was grace that taught my heart to fear and grace my fears relieved. So let me ask you this question that is challenging for me, so I admit it's challenging. When was the last time you changed something in the way you did relationships or money or time because of something in the Bible you either read or heard in a sermon? When was the last time you altered your life to have it line up more with Scripture. Or you at least wrestled with it rather than just sort of blithely dismissing it. And to be honest, I'm just going to be honest, a lot of times I live much more according to our culture than I live according to the Scriptures. 
right? But, but the, the deal is something is going to be make, help leading us. Something is going to be influencing us and guiding us in how we make decisions about money and relationships and all that. Something is going to be guiding us in that, and it's either our culture or the Bible. And do you really want it to be our culture? I mean, like, do you really want to be guided by Justin Bieber? Right? Correct answer on that is no, in case you're struggling with that. I don't know, maybe, I don't know. Now, an objection you may raise. You may say, yes, yeah, Scott, I get it, but you know what? The Bible can be interpreted lots of different ways. Who's to say what's the right way to interpret it? And there's truth in that. There are places that can be interpreted lots of different ways, but you know what? A whole lot of it is pretty clear. What if we just start with what's pretty clear, right? As Mark Twain said, it's not the parts of the Bible I don't understand that bug me. It's the parts that do, I do understand that bug me. Let's just start with what's clear. And also, you know what, a little common sense goes a long way. So when I used to teach literature to college students, I don't, there, often there would be some student who would say, you know, I'm a science major, and we only deal with facts. And you know, Hamlet can be interpreted a lot of different ways, Dr. Dudley. So how can you grade my essay? Because it's all subjective. Don't you like that? That's a good sort of, you know. I'd say, yeah, you know, true. Hamlet can be interpreted lots of different ways. The question, though, is did you support your reading with evidence from the text? Is it a fair read of the text, or did you strain the text to make your point? You can say a great many things about Hamlet, but you cannot say that he is the queen of Sweden when the text quite emphatically says that he is the prince of Denmark. So your essay, while inventive, is not a fair read of the text. C minus. See, just a little common sense can reveal a lot of, you know, you don't get fancy in the interpretation of Scripture. A little common sense goes a long way. But more to the point, the Bible can read us and delete our delusions about ourselves, but it can also show us the grace of God and it can encourage us. If for no other reason, because everyone in the Bible is so messed up, right? Like Moses, they're all just messed up, so it'll just make you feel better about your life, but also remind you that you are loved by God, that you are forgiven that you are a conqueror and co-heir with Christ and you can grow. The primary thing God says in the Bible is, I love you, I believe in you, I got a better way. You want to try it? I have a friend who was having a difficult time with his dad. They were arguing back and forth all the time. One day my friend read a verse in the Bible that said, you shall be healer of the breach, restorer of the generations. My friend read that and he thought, I need to show this verse to my dad. Because he's a problem, man. And then my friend noticed that the pronoun was, you shall be a healer, not he. And so my friend kind of wrestled with that and realized that, yes, his dad was kind of being a pain, but that he wasn't perfect either. So he went and asked forgiveness from his dad. His dad was able to do the same. And over time, the relationship was healed. He let the Bible read him, unmask his self-deception that the real problem here is just my dad, I'm fine. And because of that, the relationship was healed. Let the Bible read you. Okay, second way to delete delusions. Last one for today. Second one, second way to delete delusions, ask God to tell you who you really are. He made you, only he can tell you the truth about you. One of our interns last year had someone praying for him, and this person said to the intern, you know, I just feel like God is saying that you are a person who loves people who don't feel loved. And that really resonated with him and helped him decide to come here to work uh, with uh, Eastside Academy students as well as students in our own youth group. And some, some of those people don't feel loved. God named him. God told him the truth about him, who he really was. And he was able to follow that. Ask God to tell you the truth about you. And remember this as you do that. 
God, the voice of God is never one of shame or judgment or condemnation. If you're hearing condemnation or shame or judgment, that is not the voice of God. That's not what God does. I remember when I was in high school, and the, uh, I had this girlfriend, and the first time I met her, her parents, I wasn't a Christian at the time. I was an atheist, but they were Christian. And somehow in conversation, my girlfriend's mom started talking about their faith. And I said, oh, well, I, this is the first time I met them. I said, oh, well, you know, I'm not, a, I'm not a Christian. I'm an atheist. I hope that doesn't bother you. She said, doesn't bother me. I'm not the one going to hell. <laughs> wow. <laughs> nice to meet you. Okay, that's not God's voice. God's voice does not sound that, like that, okay? In Scripture, this is what God says to you. These are the things God says to you. Because of Jesus, you have a right standing with God just as if you'd never sinned. You can do all things through Christ who strengthens you. You have not been given a spirit of timidity, but of power, love, and of self-control. And nothing can separate you from the love of God. That's what's true about you. All right, I will continue this sermon next week. But for now, let me just ask this. Where might you be deceiving yourself about some of your flaws, but also about some of your strengths? And how can you let the Bible read you? And as you do, ask God to tell you the truth about you, because I believe he will. But you know what? I don't want you to just take my word for it. I I want you to hear from someone out there who sits in the pews with you guys, a woman I admire a lot. By the time that God told her the truth through our inner healing prayer ministry, which has helped a lot of both men and women. In fact, I want to rename that thing Fight Club because that's what it is. It's fighting the lies of the devil. And I want you to hear how a person in our congregation heard the truth about her. Would you please welcome Georgia McCoy? I really didn't understand where my spiritual journey began. Then a couple of summers ago, something happened in my life between a friend and me that caused me great pain. I doubt she realized how much she'd hurt me, but it was so painful that I couldn't sleep for a couple of weeks. As an engineer, I know that for every action, there's an equal and opposite reaction, but I also realized that my reaction to what she had done was very disproportionate. That little voice inside my head uh, that I know is not my own kept encouraging me to seek inner healing prayer. I didn't really see how that would help, but finally I gave in and I went to inner healing prayer. My prayer counselors were two women that I love dearly and that know me well. I felt a little relieved uh, when I got there that I knew them, but at the same time I was really embarrassed to have to explain this situation to them. So without revealing her name or too many of the details so they wouldn't be able to figure out who she was, I told them that I knew my pain was disproportionate to her actions. But in even telling them the story, I felt that deep pain down into my heart and soul. They prayed for me, and then they asked if they could regress me back into my early life, even childhood, and see what God might reveal to me about the genesis of these feelings. I thought it sounded just a little bit hocus-pocus, and my first reaction was, really, you're going to do what? Um, But I decided I was there, and they knew me, so I might as well do it. They carried me back through my childhood, and finally we arrived at the day I was born. But when I was born, the doctor wasn't there to catch me as I came out. 
Instead, something amazing and very unexpected happened. God was there. And he didn't just welcome me into the world and count my fingers and toes and wrap me in a blanket. Instead, he did something that was really unexpected and was truly amazing. He held me up for everybody to see. And he said, this is the baby Georgia. She is mine, and I love her. Until that moment, I never fully believed that God loved me truly and unconditionally. Suddenly, I knew where my spiritual journey had begun. I'd always said that I never knew that moment when Christ came into my life because he just felt like it just felt like he was always there. And I know now that he always has been there and he always will be there. I still feel the pain of that summer and the loss of my friendship. But instead of going back and feeling that hurt and pain again, I remember that God held me and God proclaimed to the world that she is mine and I love her. Jesus loves me. This I know. Number one, because the Bible tells me so. But number two, because God himself has told me so. Jesus and the Bible told Georgia the truth about herself. Neither victim nor victimizer, neither sinner nor perfect saint, but child of God, deeply loved by him. And that is beginning to heal the pain that she felt and put back in proportion the feelings of pain and put it back into a realistic landscape. God told her the truth about herself. When we hear the truth about ourselves through Scripture from God, it unmasks the lies, it unmasks the deceptions, it unmasks the untruths that we are living by, and it helps us to grow. So how can you begin to delete some of those delusions this week? We're going to talk more about it next week, but how can you start this week? As a way of beginning that process, I'm going to close this sermon by praying part of Psalm 139. And as I pray, I just invite you to pray silently with me in your head or just you know, say, yes, God, you know, make this true for me so that you can begin to grow into the person that not only you want to be, but the person that God says you already are. You just need to step into it. Let's pray. Lord, you have searched me and you know me. You know when I sit and when I rise. The secrets of my thoughts, the wonders of my ways. Before a word is on my tongue, Jesus, you know what I am going to say. So search me, O God, and know my thoughts. Jesus, test me and know my anxious heart. See if there is any offensive way within me. And lead me in your everlasting way, Jesus, not only now, but always. In your name, amen.